whatever it is that we believe about God, whatever we know about God, whatever it is that we think about God, whatever we think that God is like, that is going to have an enormous impact on the way that we live our lives. That's going to have a very enormous impact on the type of life that we lead because we are Christ's body here on earth. So the, the church is the body of Christ here on earth. So what, and what that means is like if we actually believe that, then we're going to want to represent Jesus the way that we think that he is. We're going to want to represent God the way that we think that God is. So if we think that God is angry all the time, we're going to become more and more angry. If we believe that God uh, maybe loves one group of people but hates another group of people, then before long we're going to start loving that group of people and then hating the other group of people if that's what we believe that God is like. So it's crucial that we get right what God is like, which is why John uh, kind of goes into this. This is why John tells us, hey, this is what God is like. So it affects every part of our lives. Whatever we think that God is like, it will have a everlasting effect on, on our lives and, and on sort of the way that we live. So it's very important. And so John kind of shows us, he says, hey, this is what God is like. We need to get this right. And it's always been this way, and so you just notice how intentional John is with this. But the thing that I've loved, because for those of you who haven't been here um, up until now, we've been going through this passage, this book, line by line, verse by verse, section by section since Easter. And those who have been here know it's like it's been very timely, like every single passage has been like right where we are in our world that week. It's been, it's been really incredible. And I love that the way that uh, the Bible does that. But the one thing that, one thing that John says about God, uh, in each chapter he kind of gives us a new picture of God. And in, in chapter 1, in 1 John 1, 5, John says God is light. God is light. Which is actually very, very powerful because when you think about darkness... And the power of darkness. There is not a single thing in the entire world that can drive out darkness besides light. Light is the only thing that can overcome darkness, but darkness is infinitely powerless against light. You come in, you turn on a switch, all of a sudden the darkness is gone. It cannot stay. Light wins every time it shows up. Every single time. So God is light. Then in chapter 2, John says, John begins by saying Jesus is our advocate. The word is the Greek word parakletos. And it has two meanings. It could mean you're called to one side. And it also could mean one who pleads another's cause before a judge. Then in chapter 3, John really focuses on the fact that God is our father. He talks about how we actually, how God's seed abides in us and that we're God's children now. And, and so today, we're going to get, as we're halfway through chapter 4 now, he gives us another description of God and of what God is like. And it's probably, it is considered by most people to be the most important aspect of God. It's probably um, the most important characteristic that you get in the entire Bible of God. And that is love. And in just a few moments, we're going we're gonna to read the scriptures and we're going to read, kind of sandwiched in this passage, this phrase that says, God is love. And there could not be a more simple, yet more loaded description of God and what he's like. And personally for me, wherever, whenever I'm faced with a hard decision, whatever that decision may be, I'm trying to figure out how do I handle a situation? How do I handle this? How do I handle that? I try my very best to come back to this verse. God is love. Am I reflecting this? In my conversations? Am I responding to people 
with, in, that reflects this beautiful aspect of God. As I navigate the things that are going on in the world that we all hear about and we all see every single week, it's something new. Are we responding as a reflection of love? So that's what we're going to look at today. So let's read it together. Let's open up our Bibles together to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. It says this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... If we love one another, then God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you, Father God, that you loved us so much that you would, come, that you would send your only son, that Jesus, you would come and you would lay down your life for us as a demonstration of what it means to love. And right now, Father God, I pray, Lord, that as we study these loaded scriptures and we study the Bible and we just pray about it and we dwell on it and we talk about it. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would just help us realize how we can encompass this same love into our world that is just so broken and is so hurting and is so lost and just needs the church to rise. Holy Spirit, right now in this room, I pray that you would be evident, that you would speak to people's hearts, Father God, and that you would speak through me, that everything that is from you, that you would have me to say, let me say, but let everything else fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. Lord, we love you and we thank you, and it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So t today I'm not going to go like line by line by line through it, uh, like sometimes we do. What I'm going to kind of try to do is I'm going to try to paint a bigger picture of this passage and what it's saying by going elsewhere in the Bible, and then we're going to kind of periodically return to it so that we can kind of more clearly define uh, just how some of this can look in our lives and in this world that we live in today. Now, for starters, John says that anybody who does not love does not know God. He doesn't know God if he doesn't love people, which is, that's a very bold statement. We've talked a lot, uh, two weeks ago we talked about knowing God. And God himself, actually in the scriptures, one time actually defines out of his own mouth what it means to know him. Okay, we always talk about, well, what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? Well, we don't know what it means. Well, yes, we do, because God says it in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah twenty-two sixteen, it says this, He pled the cause of the poor and the needy, and then it was well. Is not this what it means to know me, declares the Lord. So that's what God says out of his own mouth, declares the Lord, this is what it means to know me. You take care of people. Now John here echoes that. He's really saying the exact same thing. He says, whoever loves other people knows God. But most Christians, especially when we first get saved, we do this. You hit on this this, this morning. It was, it was perfect. Especially when we first get saved, most Christians, we get this idea in our head that knowing God means making all of the right decisions. 
and rejecting all of these things that we want to be doing, instead just silently suffering through it and we want to do it, but we just don't do it. And those are good things that we should work on. We should be becoming more and more holy as time goes by. We should strive to live moral lives. It does please God when we do that, and it does reflect the fact that God's love is actually transforming our lives. But those are not the things that it means to know God. Jesus himself in Matthew 9 This is what he says. Uh, He says this. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Or you could say it this way. I'm more interested in the way that you treat people than I am in the things that you give up because you are, you know, trying to serve me. No, see, mercy, biblical mercy, this is what it means. It means that we view the world from the perspective or the, the viewpoint of another person's needs. Okay, so you you put yourself in their place and you ask, if this were me in this moment, what would I need? How, well, how would I want to be taken care of? That's why the kind of the biggest, the, the most famous parable about mercy, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have the priest, you have the Levite who both cross to the other side of the street, but then the Samaritan actually looks at him and says, well, what, what would, what would I, if that were me, what would I want them to do for me? So he drops everything, he gives up what he's doing, and he helps this man. And then when Jesus asks, which of them is a neighbor, the, the, the lawyer says, well, the one who showed mercy, the one who put himself in the other person's shoes and actually did what he needed. It, could be, it can be defined as having active compassion. It's letting yourself actually feel for another person. And then you're sprung to action by what you feel. So merciful people are people of action. We are not people who just feel something. We are people who then do something. We are people who raise our voice when it's necessary to raise our voices. We are people who aren't afraid of what it will cost us when we do do that because we're more concerned about what it could mean for the person that we're speaking up for or what it could mean for the person that we're helping at our own expense. And the reason that I believe That understanding mercy is so incredibly important before we even try to understand like this big picture of love that John is describing is because love is an action. Love is an action and it's something that you've got to be moved toward. The way that John describes love, he describes love as something that Jesus did for us. He says, this is love. This is how you know what love is, that Christ would lay down his life for us. That is the definition of love. He gave us exactly what we needed, right? God, really, Jesus in dying, he sacrificed by showing mercy, right? He gave up his own life, not caring what it would cost him because of what it would do for us. And, but at the same time, right, John tells us, it's like, we're not even capable of loving people the way that Jesus does. We're not even capable of loving God the way that, the way that, he loves us. In fact, it's, it's not that we love God. It's that God loved us because it's just such a big thing that he did for us. So we can never, ever, ever pay back God for what he did for us by loving him more and more and more because our love for him, it'll just never be at that level. But he does tell us that we can reflect him and we can reflect his love in the way that we love one another. And some of us, you may hear this, and I know for me this was me too for a long time, and you think, man, I'm just not even that loving. 
Like, I, I, how do I get there? I, I, don't love, I know I don't love people the way that I should. I know that I don't give enough of my life for people like I'm supposed to do. And, and I, want, I want you to hear me on this. I really want you to catch this. Okay, Paul says this in Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, I believe it's 3.12, he tells us that his prayer is that we would abound and we would increase, that the Lord would actually increase our love for one another as time goes by. So we should actually be growing in this. This isn't something that we're just naturally, bam, we have it, we're good. No, we're actually supposed to grow in our love. We should be working toward finding creative ways to take care of other people. We should find creative ways for how we can love our neighbors and be generous toward the people in our community. But just like we said a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 3, who we will be one day is not who we are now. We're all a work in progress. Life is a process and love is a process. But I think it's important for you guys to understand this about the Apostle John, the guy who's writing this. Because most of us, we read this letter, and it's very obvious this dude understands love, right? This is like the most love-centric thing you've ever read in your entire life. Every line of this entire epistle is like love, 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 love. It's filled with some of the most incredible scriptures about love, and this particular passage we read is like the center of it, right? But love was not always the way of John. This letter was actually written, um, we, we know that this was written toward the end of his life. He was a very old man. He wrote it really not too long before he passed away. And John, if you, if you study him, he spent just a couple of years following Jesus. He studied, under, you know, studied at the feet of Jesus. And then and then he had a lifetime to process all these things that Jesus had taught him and learn and figure out this stuff as, to, as he continued this ministry after Jesus died and resurrected. And this is the guy who eventually, the history books record us, tell us that John actually, when he was old and frail, he would have to be carried in. I think I told you this before. He had to be carried into the churches to give his sermons. And he gave five-worded sermons. They were little children, love one another. And he did it every single time. They kept bringing him back, the guest speakers. Like, oh, he is, he's probably like doing the, the, the speaking circuit. He's like, I got this. And he's like, little children, love one another. And finally, one of the members got mad. They're like, John, why do you keep giving us the same exact stinking message every single time? <laughs> like, do you have nothing new? Is there nothing fresh in there? And this is what John says. He says, that's the Lord's commandment. He says, if you do that, it will be sufficient. This is a guy that certainly thinks that there's nothing more important than love. But if you turn your Bibles back to Luke, Luke 9, 51 through 56, you read about a very different John. A younger, more brash, less gracious John. And in this story, Jesus, he's with the disciples, and he sends some messengers ahead to a Samaritan village. And, and he, he says, hey, tell the village to prepare the way for my coming, uh, so that we can go and minister to people, so we can share the gospel, so we can bring hope and we can bring love and we can bring something good news to this place. But these messengers come back and say, the village rejected you, Jesus. They don't even want you to come. And this is how a much younger John and his brother James responded to this. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Like, Jesus, these people deserve to die because they rejected you. Do you want me to send some fire? I'm like, how dark is that? That's really dark, guys. And 
The Bible simply says, well, Jesus, he rebuked them. He says, I can't even, you know, how, I can't, how do you even say that? I, don't even, I can't comprehend this. Like, no, you can't do that. Don't do that. And then, and then they kind of just moved on. They don't say a lot about what happened, but Jesus did rebuke them. And, the, and, and, and I, just, I can't imagine what Jesus was thinking. I can't even imagine what the look on his face must have been when he heard that. Like, dude, like we're talking about grace. We're talking about mercy. We're talking about love. We're going there to help them. We want them to be in a message of hope. And because they reject us before they even hear it, we think we should just wipe them out. No more hope. No more gospel. No more good news. That's it. It's the opposite reason we're going there, John, you know? So that's how John was. But John grew. John grew. And he began to see it more clearly and began to understand it more clearly. And, you know, at the very end of Jesus' life, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he's hanging on the cross, it was John who was there with him. He wasn't hanging there with him, but he was there for him. And, and, this is what the Bible says after that. It says that Jesus was there, John was there, Jesus' mother Mary was there, and Jesus asked John to take care of his mother. And then the Bible says that John, uh, after Jesus died, took Mary into his own home and treated her like his own mother. He grew. He became more loving. And the reason that I think that this matters to us right now is I believe there's a certain comfort that comes with knowing that for John... Growing up into love, it was a lifelong process. The man writing this letter was a very different man who wanted to call down fire on those Samaritans after they rejected Jesus. But this is a man who has now come to terms with the fact that if he had one word left in the entire vocabulary, he could choose one word that he could get his church to wrap their minds around as to what God is, it undoubtedly, without question, would be this word, love. But he had to learn it. Now, that's not meant to be an excuse for us to not help people because we're learning, or it's not an excuse to like ignore brokenness because we're learning, but no, we should be practicing, that's my point. We should be practicing these things because that's how you learn. But it is something that you learn. It's not only something that you feel. But I th this is why I think that we need to be so aware of this. And this is just an observation that I've made. Something that I've noticed in people. In, uh, from t talking, we deal with a lot of people. We talk to a lot of people. And one thing that I've learned and noticed in people as they get older is they either become more selfish or they become more loving. There's not really much in the middle. See, you get more selfish because the world is a cold place. It's a very cold place. And it's not been very forgiving of you, so you're not very eager to be very forgiving of it. You feel like it owes you something, so you're going to do everything that you can to get whatever it is that you think that you are owed in the time that you have left. You know, in, in Matthew 24, 12, Jesus is talking about... Uh, He's talking about the last days. And in, in, in it, he says that in the last days, lawlessness will increase. And because lawlessness increases, the love of many will grow cold. The further the world gets from the way that we think that it should be, the harder it's going to be to love it. Because when you see something that you want to change and you say, this needs to change, and you see something and you're like, you have so many good intentions and you're working toward it and then it doesn't change, you get very disappointed. 
I've been kind of walking somebody through this just recently. You get very disappointed, and those things can really, really wear on you. And if you let it, your discouragement can very quickly lead to bitterness. And it all came from a good place. It came from a heart of wanting the world to be better. But that happens to a lot of people, and the older we get, and the more that we see, it only leads us to getting more and more and more angry. And you get more selfish. But others actually go the total opposite way, and they get more loving. And you get more loving because the world is a cold place. And it's not been very forgiving of you, so you know how much it hurts to be let down over and over and over again. And the more that you felt that, the more you've wanted something better for the next person. The more you've wanted to protect your children from that. You know it was taken from you because you have this lifelong list of things that you wanted to see happen, and a lot of them maybe didn't happen, and they're important to you. You want something better for your children. The same circumstances that have the potential to fuel anger can also be the fuel for mercy, for generosity, for grace, for love. You see the same brokenness, but you respond in a different way. And and for me, if I'm honest with you, there's certainly been times when I feel like I'm getting more angry. Like, man. But when I read the Bible, when I, when I read this book, the more I read it, the more I realize how clear the case is that it is love and love alone that's going to win the world. That's it. And I see it so clearly. Now I even read the same scriptures in that book that I read when I was a kid, that I talked about with people when I was a kid, that I learned about when I was a kid. I grew up hearing them. But the older that I get the more I see the grace that's interwoven in all of these beautiful words. They stand out to me more and more and more, probably because I need it more and more and more. And I I, I read these things in the Bible, these words of Jesus, and I'm like, man, how did I not see it before? How did I not see this grace before? How did I not see this love before? And then I'll talk to other people who maybe they don't see it that same way because we all read it a little differently. And they don't necessarily agree with me, and I show them these passages, and I'm like, see, it's right there. How can you not see it? How could this mean anything but grace? How could this mean anything but love, 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 love? And here's why I believe that that happens. Here's why I believe some people resist the message of this unconditional, amazing love of God in the scriptures. I believe that this phrase, God is love, this staple, this is is the gospel, God is love, I believe that it stands in opposition to the religion that we kind of maybe unknowingly created that says, God loves me because I. God loves me because I read my Bible. God loves me because I go to church. God loves me because I fast and I pray. It's exactly what the Pharisees did. So God, look at all these things that I can do to earn your acceptance. There's, Jesus tells a parable about, about a Pharisee in Luke, in Luke 18, and it's the same thing. Actually, it's kind of the other way. Look at what I don't do, right? There's, this Pharisee's like, he's there and he's praying. And he's like, man, thank you, God, that I'm not like the adulterers. Thank you that I'm not like the extortionists. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector who's standing in the corner right now. Thank you that I'm not like that guy. God loves me because I'm not a tax collector. God loves me because I don't look at pornography. God loves me because I don't ever get drunk. 
No, guys, God loves you because God is love. And he can't be anything else. Remember when John says, God is light? So he can be other things, but they're all good things. Right? God is light, and that is 1 John 1, 5. It says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Darkness can't even exist where God is. He can't show up in a dark place and not light it up. He can't not love you. He's, he's love. In, in chapter 3, he's the Father, right? 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love uh, that, that the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We are his children, but even when Jesus talks about the perspective of a father, he gives us the parable of the prodigal son. Okay? In the prodigal son, he gives the most extreme example he could ever give is somebody who would push his father away, somebody who could let his father down, somebody who could try their best to distance themselves from their dad. He did everything imaginable, and yet that dad dropped everything, ran to his son, came back and threw a party the second that, that he was ready to come home. That is God, and God is love. But the question is, what does that really look like in the flesh? Because even what we read in Luke, or even what I told you in Luke about the guy praying in the synagogue, it's a parable. Prodigal son, it's a parable. Jesus tells him in parables. But, for, or, but John 1.14 says that when Jesus came, the word became flesh. He put flesh and blood onto all these words that we just read. So what does that look like in action? So let's try to put this in action, okay? There's a story in the Bible in John 8. And what I'm trying to do today, just so you know, I'm sticking it in the Bible. I'm just sort of framing something biblically for you, and I'll let you figure out how to apply it in your own lives into the world. But John 8, there's an incredible story about a woman caught in the act of adultery. And in my belief, at least, there is nothing else, guys, that I've ever found in the entire Bible that truly puts flesh and blood to the fact that God is love more than this passage, more than this story. And when you see it in action, you're going to realize this explains everything. It's all here. It gives us the answers that we thought didn't even exist to problems that we thought, that we thought were unsolvable. It's all here. And the story goes like this. You've heard it. This woman, she is dragged into the temple after being caught in the act of adultery. Now, see, we like to imagine this setting being like by a beach, like some tranquil setting. There's an ocean right there on a beach, you know, because he draws in the sand. It happens in the temple. Let that sink in for just like two seconds. That would be like us dragging somebody in right now who committed adultery, putting her in the center and surrounding her and deciding if we're going to throw our rocks at her and kill her or not. In the most sacred place you can even imagine. So she's taken to Jesus. And her accusers say this, the, the law of Moses says that she should be stoned. What do you say? And what Jesus do, did, it must have been brilliant, even though we don't know exactly what he did. Because what he does is he, he bends down, he writes something in the sand, he gets up, he says, well, let, whoever has no sin, let him throw the first stone. And they all walk away. Two takeaways. First takeaway, the way of Jesus is always a third way. Always a third way. Notice what the text says. It's very, very specific. The leaders say to Jesus, the law says such a woman, it commands us to stone such a woman. This woman broke the law. But does Jesus break the law? No, he doesn't. Does Jesus follow the law? Well, no, he doesn't. 
He doesn't. What, what Jesus does is he stands in opposition to what the letter of the law would have him to do if they followed it to a T by standing next to the person that ultimately he knew he existed for. He knew this is the woman that I'm going to die for, just like he's going to die for you, just like he's going to die for me, because none of us can keep all of those laws. That's why Jesus had to come. It's not because the law was bad, it's because we can't keep the law. Because you and I, we will always fall short of who it is that we are supposed to be, every single time. Second takeaway. The very next verse, Jesus says this. He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he bends down, he writes in the sand, and as he's doing that, the passage says this. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left with the woman standing before him. You know, I thought, I thought about this line, like beginning with the older ones, beginning with the older ones. To be honest, it, it took me years to figure out what this was saying. What, at least what I think it was saying, because I, I don't know if it's really saying this or not, but this is, this is what I got out of it. And do you know what it took me to figure out what it was saying? It took me getting a little older. It took me making a few more mistakes. See, when I was younger, I have a lot of my friends here today from when I was younger, so a lot of them know this about me. It's kind of an interesting day today. Um, so welcome, everybody. We're glad you're here. I'm really glad you guys are here. Really. Um, when I was younger, I was a lot like John. I, I, I was. I, I, I thought, it's my way or the highway, right? I'm a Christian. I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I do do this, and I do do that, and I go to church. I thought things were so simple. This is how I thought. I said, you just don't do stuff like that and you don't get stoned for it. Right? You don't commit adultery. You don't get stoned for committing adultery. But that type of a mindset, it only works if you never look in the mirror. It only works if you never read the rest of the laws, the ones that you've broken. But the more life I lived, the older I got, the more things I screwed up. And the more things I screwed up, the more I realized, Jacob, you're not any better than anybody else. But every time I fell, Jesus was always right there to pick me back up. Every time I fell, grace would always raise me back up. And this idea that says that Jesus can meet me in my mess, but when somebody else has a mess... They deserve to be stoned for theirs? There's just no reconciling that if the love of God truly lives in you. There is no reconciling that. Jesus died for us. Jesus gave his life for us, and that's our example for how we're supposed to treat one another. He died for us. And and I think that this picture of this woman caught in the act of adultery, man, it's, it's such a beautiful picture of this. What a display of love. What a display of meeting somebody right where they are. Not just being the guy who does not condemn. Hear this, okay? Jesus was not just the guy who did not condemn. But Jesus was the guy who got everybody else to lay down their stones. And this is so key. It all goes back to that fundamental verse in 1 John 2, 1. It says, little children, don't sin. Please don't sin. But when you do sin, 
because you do because you will sin you have an advocate you have a paracletos called to one side someone who pleads a cause before a judge remember two definitions and in this moment Jesus was both he stood by the side of a woman who was guilty and he pled her cause before a group of people who really had already made their decision. They already had stones. But notice this, guys. Jesus did not plead her cause by using her merits. Because she was guilty. He pled her cause by reminding everybody that the world is a broken place. And to one degree or another, each person standing there holding a stone has contributed to its brokenness. And do you really want to break it further by heaping upon this woman a judgment of the law that if you applied it to your own life, you'd probably be the one sitting in the middle. And this is where I really had to pause this week. Because, guys, it's one thing to lay down a stone. We should lay down our stones. We all got to lay them down. But it's an entirely different thing to effectively persuade every other person in that room to do the exact same thing. The love in your heart in this moment, the things that you feel in this moment, those things matter. You don't have those feelings for no reason at all. They matter greatly. The love that you have in your heart, it could be the thing that somebody else needs the most right now. It could be what somebody else needs to hear to get them to lay down their stones today. The mercy that you feel, it matters. It matters. The way that you use your voice to speak up for others, it matters. The Bible tells us, be a voice for the voiceless. Because love is the only thing that is going to change the world. It is the only thing. Love is the only thing that's ever going to bring justice into our world because it's the only thing that's going to motivate the type of action that's needed to get there. You have to learn how to love but in all things, we have to remember that we represent Jesus. And we have to remember that God is love. Because can you imagine if in that temple that day, Jesus hesitated? He even thought for a moment, well, let me think about this. Maybe he picked up a stone. He's like, yeah, yeah, she deserves this. Now, we all know that that's, she, she probably did deserve it, but that's not who Jesus is. We all deserve it, but that's not who Jesus is. So Jesus he doesn't pick up a stone, right? We know that's the furthest thing from Jesus. But yet, here's the problem, and here's why I have, this is my problem. I feel like a lot of Christians represent God as if that's what he would have done. As if that's what he's like. When you can sit back in your life, in your wherever, and you can make judgments about people's lives based on a passage that you probably barely understand, or about a circumstance that you probably don't know much about, when right in front of you is a person, a physical person, a real person, who if for just one minute you could put yourself in her shoes, if for just one minute you could empathize, not necessarily knowing about her past, not knowing what led her to this moment, not knowing what went on yesterday or the day before or the day before, not knowing any of the circumstances that led to where you are right now, if you can make that type of a judgment your heart has grown cold, just like Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. Your heart has grown cold. And if you're in here and you're wondering, how do I learn? How do I learn love? 
I don't want a cold heart. How do I learn empathy? How do I get it? How do I empathize with a story about somebody who's done something awful? Something that I would never do, something that I've never done. Well, first of all, never say you'd never do something. It's a scary place to be. But something you've never done, something you don't understand. And here's where I would encourage you to start with the story. Go back to that moment in the temple and ask yourself that, this one question. What did Jesus write in the ground? What did he write? Now, you say to me, Pastor Jacob, we don't know what he wrote in the ground. Well, you're absolutely right. It's impossible to know what he wrote in the ground. You're absolutely right. The Bible doesn't tell us. Exactly. That is my point in asking you this question. What if we don't know? Because we're not supposed to know. What if we don't know what he wrote in the ground because by not knowing it leaves us to our imaginations? What if by not knowing what he wrote in the ground it leaves us, in a, it leaves us to ourselves and allows us to ask this question, what would I need to be written in the ground for me to lay down my stone and, follow, and walk away? What would I need to see Jesus write in that sand that would convict me enough to lay down my stone that I'm holding? What would it be? What would it be for me? What would it be for you? Would it be a list of all your sins? Would it be all your thoughts that Jesus sees and you see but nobody else sees? Would it be a list of these things that maybe you never made right with God, you haven't repented of yet? Or maybe it'd be a list of the things that went on in that woman's life leading up to that fateful moment for her. Would it turn your eyes to yourself and your own sins and these things that you got to work on? Or would it turn your eyes toward empathy? towards somebody's situation that you don't understand. We don't know what he wrote. Because we weren't supposed to know that part. But what you need to know, and what I know without a shadow of a doubt, is that we have got to find a way to lay down these stones. We've got to lay them down. Listen, a lot of people skip this part. Right, this is what happens in this story right after the section we just read. Most of us stop at verse 11 when Jesus says, okay, go and sin no more. If they didn't condemn you, go and sin no more. And we need to go and sin no more. Super crucial. It's a huge part of the gospel. It transforms us, it changes us, it leads us into something new. But in verse 12, it picks up a whole other section, we think, but it's take, it says just after that. Jesus says this. He repeats himself. He says, hey guys, I'm the light of the world. Now watch this. Again, he puts flesh and blood to the words that John uses to describe God. God is light, 1 John 1, 5. But this is how the Pharisees respond to him. Essentially, they're like, Jesus, dude, you can't keep saying that about yourself. You just, you can't. Like, we don't believe you. You can't just say something about yourself and then it just doesn't make it true. Read it. It's what it says. And this is so fascinating. This time, he actually turns the law on them. He flips the law on them. And this is what he does. See, in that day, there's something called the law of evidence. And we don't talk about the law of evidence as much when we should talk about it in what happened with the woman caught in adultery. Because the law of evidence says that in order to convict somebody for a crime, to actually say they're guilty, you had to have two people who physically saw it take place. And then, you could, then, then she could be liable to be stoned for it. You don't have two witnesses, you can't stone them. Which means there were two witnesses. By the way, that's not even my story, but that's not even where I'm going right now. But the fact is, there were two people there who witnessed this thing happen. Otherwise, they couldn't do that. 
Okay, but Jesus uses the law toward himself, and he says, actually, there are two witnesses that are, making, that are bearing witness to the fact that I am light, and both I bear witness and God the Father bears witness. And your law is the one that says if two bear witness, then it is true. It makes it true. Okay, but then he does this, and this is absolutely huge. He says this to them. He calls them out. He says, you all judge people according to their flesh. Right? Just like this woman you were ready to stone five minutes ago. You judged her according to her flesh. Now, we would expect Jesus to follow up that by saying, I judge the heart. Or I judge the bigger picture. Or I judge what's really going on. But do you know what Jesus said? I judge no one. I judge no one. Then he says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Because it's I alone who can judge. I and the Father together. It's because it's not I alone who judge, but it's I and the Father together, two witnesses. We can judge together. So Jesus says we can judge. We're the only ones who can, yet I still don't. In this time in life, I have not come here to do that for you. And one day, when I will judge you, guess what, guys? When you one day get judged, you are going to be judged by the Jesus who loved you so much that he died for you. He laid down his life for you. You're going to get judged by Jesus who gave his life for you. And God the Father who loved you so much, he sent his son to give his life for you. God the Father who says, you are my children now. It's like, imagine going and having your dad be the judge and whether or not you go to prison. Please give me that judge. Please give me that jury. Please, please. You're the seed of God. Jesus tells us, he says, you guys judge without any basis or way of knowing what's going on in the depths of people's hearts. You don't know, but you're quick to rule somebody else out. But Jesus, who sees the depths of our hearts, he still chooses not to judge us. Because God is love. Even when you've sinned, God is love. Even when a law has been broken, God is still love. Even when you and I are not loving, God is still love. And for me this week, to realize that God is love even in the most corrupt societies, and that God has always been love even in the most destructive times in our history, and it refueled my heart and my love for people even more now in these moments where sometimes it just feels like the whole world is falling apart. Man, when love has grown cold, guys, God just kept being love. And if his people could just grasp this, guys, I think we'd change the whole world. So I just want to end by asking you this one last question, and this is for Christians, and then after that we'll get ready and we'll take communion. But Christians, if we are not making the world a better place, then what are we doing here? Why are we even here? Think about that.